0: Hello and
1: welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Well, this is Ilona Thompson with Palette Exposure. I'm here today with Cameron Douglas, master Sommelier actually the only master sommelier from New Zealand, and there's a total of whopping 240 worldwide. So it's a pretty special crown to wear. Um, I have had the privilege of listening to some of his remarks at the Sauvignon Blanc conference in Marlborough, Um, and a few other bits and pieces. He has exceptional depth and breadth of knowledge, and I cannot wait to get to know him on a personal and professional level. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: Thank you um, so i'm going to start from the very beginning. you're obviously from New Zealand, but tell us about your background, your childhood, how did you come to know wine, all that good stuff
2: okay well i'm very young at fifty three years of age, <laughs> and I grew up in Auckland in, uh-huh. the w- in West auckland went to um, my schooling was all there, and fast forward to high school. I left quite early mm-hmm. disillusioned a little bit by the education system and the choices that I had. But the biggest catalyst for me leaving school was a careers advisor told me that, no Cameron, you're not smart enough to be an airline pilot. You need to think of something else. And crushed my dreams, just absolutely crushed my dreams. But I guess in hindsight, that led to all sorts of different pathways in my life that now brings us together sitting here so I left high school quite early, and in those days, you could get a job quite quickly. And I went straight into the banking scene, oh. became a bank teller for about 18 months. And in my second year as a bank teller, I started moonlighting in hospitality to try and make more money I got a job at a uh, Hyatt Hotel in their banquet department. and And I think that was probably the first real change in my life because... You work all sorts of different hours in a hospitality context. And so what do you do after work? You go night clubbing, you go to restaurants late or cafes late. And I was able to actually increase my income more in hospitality than I I did in banking. So I actually left that and went full time into the hospitality scene. It suited me. I felt good being there. A little while later on I decided that what was it that I liked the most about hospitality and that at the time was cooking and so I found myself uh, a few jobs in kitchens learning how to cook and that was uh, and I had an amazing time because there's a there's a strong connection between uh, aromas and flavors and food and even textures and ultimately wine as well so a lot of my foundation nose, if you like was done in the kitchens of cafes and restaurants oh. and ultimately that led to some work with a couple of key chefs in New Zealand at the time and learning really different disciplines in food But no formal training. So there's no formal training coming into this conversation at all. And that was great fun for a time. I decided that, like many New Zealanders, I wanted to go and live overseas. Mm -hmm. And I ended up moving to London for a while, Ah. getting a job in a shoe store. I couldn't find a job (laughs) in a kitchen in a shoe store. And I did that for a while, and that gave me the opportunity to travel a little bit to Europe as well. And that was great fun. No wine at this point in time. And I think along the way, I met Janet, my wife, and um, said goodbye. <laughs> we hadn't gotten married yet. Oh. and But there was a strong pull back to New Zealand because of her. Of course. And came back to New Zealand ultimately. And we've been together for over 30 years, married That's for uh, nearly 25 years. Milestone right there. Mm. And so we're very, very happily ensconced together.
1: That's a big deal, having a partner like that, life partner.
2: Mm. But what I didn't, I went back into a kitchen for a time and there were a couple of redundancies along the way. So it made me question if I really wanted to stay in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to front of house and started working tables, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, at that time as a waiter. Didn't really know the world of wine as such. I served a lot of it, but I really wasn't that well versed in it at all. And then there came a time where I got a position. Well, I, I, I you know, I drank a lot of wine. I think that's part of any sommelier's background <laughs> story. You end up drinking a lot, but. There came a time where I thought, what is it really that I want to do? Because I was at an age, you know, there's this tipping point in your life is, do you carry on or do you actually do do something different? Um, I, I was at this crossroads, if you like. But I did decide at the time what I enjoyed the most about Front of House was wine. And there were people that um, I watched and learned from who developed conversations at the table and they were telling them stories about the wine, stories about their travel, stories about the winemakers and the engagement table side was completely different from what I was doing, which is essentially taking food and beverage orders and delivering them. The engagement wasn't the same. So I decided that I think that I'd like to do that.
1: So the storytelling part, the social glue, the conversation it wasn't really the flavor profile of the wine
2: necessarily? Not, a, not okay. yet. No, not, not yet, yet, not yet okay. at all. So I got a position in a couple of different restaurants Mm -hmm. where Janet was actually working as well. Oh, cool! And we discovered just briefly at at those times that we worked quite well together. There was no one-upmanship. It was just like, this is the job. This is what we're doing. These are the customers. And we worked really, really well together. But ultimately, I got a job as a sommelier at a Sheraton Hotel Mm -hmm. in Auckland. And started working in their fine dining restaurant and that was a position that I held for five years although I did move to their front office for a time as well Mm. concurrently I decided that education was something that I needed and went back to school so I went part-time at uh, polytechnic Mm -hmm. learning Um, application software and getting hospitality credentials and management credentials along the way just passing these little bits and that kept my mind busy in a different way as well
0: Mm
2: so I had this career that was building in hospitality but I was getting back into education as well and I think if you get back into education on your own terms then it's a lot smoother rather than being pigeonholed or pushed into it. So ultimately, I got a degree in education Hmm. through, it took me eight years, part-time, and I got a degree in education, all the while working at a hotel. Mm -hmm. And then once I moved out of the hotel, I went to a restaurant, very famous restaurant in Auckland at the time called Vinnie's Restaurant. And who happened to be working there was Janet, my wife. How about that? So we were together at that restaurant for 10 years and most of the time she was my boss and I was the sommelier and that's extraordinary
1: right there, yeah. I mean just pausing on that <laughs> it's like wow
2: But like I said, we work really well together yeah. it's like these are the jobs, we just get on with it and um, you know, you steal a kiss every now and again in the corridor of the restaurant but that's, Aww. you know, these things that's part of the story as well Anyhow, whilst I was working at this restaurant I learned about credentials as a sommelier and I didn't really know too much about it but I thought that it was something that I'd like to explore and literally six months later I had learned that there was a man called Evan Goldstein who was a master sommelier in the San Francisco Bay Area and I contacted him and he allowed me access to enroll in the Court of Master of program in the USA. Because being in New Zealand, in Australasia, there wasn't a clear pathway uh. to to that. And at that time, there was only one Court of Master of globally. Right. Uh, nowadays, there's two chapters. There's a British chapter and the USA chapter, mm-hmm. or the Americas. Anyhow. Um, Long story short, one of our friends that we'd made whilst I was working at the Sheraton was a flight attendant for United, and we used to go to Las Vegas and spend some time with her and her family, and when the CMS program came along, the program was in Las Vegas, so I did my introductory certificate for the Quartermaster Somalias at the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas, <laughs> and I'm I had accommodation. yeah, so all these... You know, stars were beginning to align, but there was a lot of uncertainty and pressure, mental pressure, because I just didn't know if I knew enough Mm -hmm. to get through this program. And it was very intimidating because back then in the Bellagio Ballroom, 150 candidates listening to these master sommeliers wax lyrical about wine and countries, and here's the microphone and you start talking about wine in front of these people who were ultimately your peers and it was very intimidating and there was an exam of course at the end of it and I very fortunately passed that but there was one man at the front of the room who gave me my certificate and eyeballed me and his name was Fred Dame Master Somalia Fred Dame and he said if you want to go further in this program I will help you and it was like the sun burst through the clouds it was like now I know what I want to do this person gave me faith in myself I had enough experience and study ethic to pass it's just like the floodgates opened and there I was okay now I know what I want to do uh, Fred and I have been friends for a long time now and we're having lunch with him on Monday so it's, cool you know, yeah um, So I got home, um, said to Janet, I'm gonna be a master of Somalia one day. And she said, okay. And it took nearly eight years um, to get through to becoming one because it's just, there's so much study involved and so much preparation and wine tasting. But in the meantime, in the background, I had I guess when you're studying for a credential such as a Master Somme, you have to make sacrifices. So the TV gets turned off, you don't go to the movies, and your spare time is spent reading and joining tasting groups and so on. I had no tasting groups in New Zealand. So I was on an airplane to California a lot, because it was cheaper than London, and um, camped out in this house here it's your friend's home um, this is George's house Mm -hmm. and um, we became friends through wine and dog circles that's a whole other story (laughs) got it, different podcast uh, (laughs) but George has been a fabulous supporter and friend all the way through even today Mm -hmm. and allowed me to stay here so I caught train into town every time I was here and joined tasting groups and study groups and so it was a very expensive undertaking but a necessary one in order to get the chunks of the learning done and your palate trained into the system that the CMS has.
1: Have you ever been discouraged along the way? This is a massive commitment, mental, emotional, and financial.
2: I have no, I've never been discouraged. I've been asked to make sure that I'm checking my goals against the pressures of life mm-hmm. at the same time but it was always there and the sacrifices that I was talking about included stepping out of the hospitality sector nearly completely, not, not totally, but nearly completely in favor of an income that was more supportive of what I was trying to achieve. So with my degree, I got a job at a university. And although I'd gotten the job at the university anyway, this was made sense to keep that job and lessen the hospitality stuff
1: because the hours are wild and it just takes a lot out of you
2: it sure does and i got some great support from the university as well allowing me to do all this travel so all these pieces now had started coming together and i passed all of my exams um, in the usa at the time there was a scholarship to, um, uh, or several scholarships, funnily enough, available in the program. But there was one scholarship that I could apply for to, ta- to go to London to sit exams as well. I had four goes at my master sommelier exams. The first time I sat, I got nothing. There were no, I didn't pass anything. But that was a valuable lesson to learn as well. You know, you don't give up in this program. The second time I took the test, I passed the service exam under, you know, Evan Goldstein and Fred Dane were there, and Shane Bjornholm was there, all these famous masters, Tim Gazer was there, they were my examiners. And the third time I went through, because I was on the clock now, I had to get the tasting and the theory passed within two years, or I was resetting and had to start again. Mm -hmm. And the third time I took the exam, I didn't get those. other two parts Mm -hmm. and so i had one more chance before i reset so it was suggested i applied for the scholarship which i did and i got the scholarship which essentially paid my airfare and a lot of accommodation to get to london Mm -hmm. from new zealand to take the exam again in the same year and that was in november 2007 and i got those other two parts so i became a master sommelier In America and the UK
1: that's extraordinary yeah is that very uncommon now it's totally uncommon
2: now because there are since since that time the um, American chapter and the British chapter um, manage their own education and examining programs Mm -hmm. and whilst the levels are the same and they certainly um, edit each other's exams and so on Nobody can do that anymore. You can't sit one part in the US and another part in the UK. Since that time, that's all changed. My diploma is a British diploma, though, and it's Mm -hmm. got Brian Julian's name on the bottom of it. But um, anyhow, then the floodgates of something else opened up, and that's notoriety. Mm. And I, you know, becoming the first master som at that time in the Southern Hemisphere and Australasia and New Zealand yeah. was a big deal. And they can never take that away from you. <laughs> Not that I want anything like that to happen, but it was a wonderful opportunity for me to start doing other things as well. And I think the word master in master sommelier means a lot. Or, or it carries a lot of weight or mana as we call it in New Zealand and and you if you're going to be a master you are a mentor you are somebody there that, that is there to encourage the next generation to come through you pay it forward now you can do that um, through kindness taking a phone call helping people with their tasting or you can take a deep dive in and be an active member of the Court of Master Sommeliers or you're doing something to help other people. And that was kind of in my bones anyway. I was an educator. And so I suddenly started getting phone calls and emails from people, you know, from Brazil to Russia saying, I want to be a SOM. I heard you uh, might be able to help me. Can you help me get started? Or I live in the middle of nowhere in, you know, the Midwest of the USA. Mm-hmm. I feel really alone. How do I get started? It's fascinating people. that yeah. they would
1: just find you and reach out to you specifically. There must have been something yeah. compelling about your.
2: Well, here's journey. another. Here's another story. <laughs> the a very good friend of George's, um, whom we met just through our time here in Los Altos over the years, worked for Google. Oh. And her job at Google was running the film unit. So there was a time where she and a camera crew followed me around on my study hops around America filming me tasting with masters and showing my journey. And once I became a master, they filmed a speech I gave at Google. And that's I mean that's still on YouTube and people can watch it. I had a lot more hair back then, I can tell you. And that was accessible globally, I guess. And so people found out about me through that of talk that I gave as well. So they could just, you know, reach out to me on email quite quickly. And so now I'm in a position where I'm a lecturer at a university and I'm still at that same job. I'm running the beverage program for the uh, Auckland University of Technology. I am on a judging panel for this and that. So I've traveled the world as a wine judge. I'm the chair of judges for the Canberra International Riesling Challenge in Australia. I have my own website. I have my own wine review program. And I'm now writing for four magazines as well. You're so busy. Super busy, but it, it, it's all it's all the same topic if you like it's all beverages and and food so i'm kind of doing what i love
1: so back in 2007 Mm -hmm. what was the state of new zealand wine specifically in that context what in your observation was it like back then for new zealand
2: well new zealand historically has gone through these big sort of growth phases in the wine sector Mm -hmm. and in the early 2000s in that sort of 2007 period was a a time of investment and growth for Mm -hmm. sure there was a lot of international investment a lot of us dollars buying brands or us dollars Mm co-owning and so it was a a period of growth but also a much bigger understanding and liking for varieties outside the Sauvignon Blanc reputation so Pinot Noir was becoming a big deal back then mm-hmm. and you know the rest is history and as far as that's concerned and so I guess the the industry itself I get you know they embraced the Somalia thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people still don't e- know what a Somme is. They're growing. You know, that song movie, you know, helped a lot That's for sure. True. But it was also a growth time in terms of the hospitality sector and restaurants. And there were a lot of restaurants opening, a lot of cafes opening and getting people out of their homes into dining mm. out was also a change in terms of the type of dining that people were doing you know fine dining was still a thing Mm -hmm. and white tablecloths and silver and nice china and great glassware but it was it was at a time where it was beginning to tire a little so the the idea of great chefs great food but not so formal in terms of dining was starting to appear it was On the back of the rise of the cafe Mm -hmm. because the cafe culture was booming ahead a lot of people were not going to restaurants in favor of cafe because they just wanted to eat some nice food in a social setting so restaurants had to buck their ideas up and this was happening in that period coffee was already very strong beer culture was building the garage type beer was starting to show back then it's exploded since and then um, home distilleries, well, not domestic home distilleries, just mm-hmm. New Zealand-made spirits were uh-huh. starting to um, appear as well, but not that many.
1: It sounds like a very exciting time. And there you were, essentially what you described, you have a very internationalized, meaning you know, cosmopolitan, you had exposure to so many wine markets and so many different conversations with the members of the trade
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, worldwide. Yeah. But you are in fact in New Zealand and you're probably assessing, kind of taking in the temperature at the time it was happening. What was your mind at? Did you want to really represent New Zealand and become this goodwill ambassador at the time or did it evolve?
2: I think it was a little bit organic and evolved in its own way because even after passing the Somalia master exams, i was still hopping on an airplane. In fact, that increased. And I was always loading my suitcase with New Zealand Wines to share with fellow masters, with restaurateurs, with friends I made along the way. Mm -hmm. And social media was a great friend because you could start posting these pictures of or telling the stories of New Zealand wine through pictures and um, social media platforms and taking the message back. So organically, I suddenly became, and self-titled, the unofficial ambassador of New Zealand wine because I was over here so much and I was in Australia and I was in London that it made sense and I was happy to do it and it was great fun.
1: New Zealand wine is often associated in consumers' minds with Sauvignon Blanc. That's kind of a natural Mm go-to. Would you agree with that assessment? Is it uh, not comprehensive enough of a perception? What is your take on that?
2: Well, Sauvignon Blanc is certainly the backbone of our wine industry in New Zealand and will continue to be that way for a long time to come. It is a great association. It's like you know bungee jumping in New Zealand and Lord <laughs> of the Rings in New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand. It is so strong that it overshadows a lot of the other varieties mm-hmm. that we are very proud of and that we're trying to um, show wine drinkers around the world how good these other varieties are and it's very tough to do that for a number of different reasons um, not the least of which is that Sauvignon Blanc is so strong and we're very happy about that but the New Zealand dollar um, means that any other variety is that is more expensive to make like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are a much tougher ask to get into a market mm-hmm. say for example in the USA because the average price of a bottle of wine landed in the USA is much, much higher than that, say, coming from Chile or the south of France or even parts of Italy and Spain. So, we're also faced with the challenge of the reputation of all those other countries' wines who do similar varieties Mm -hmm. where we're now competing with them. We're hoping and starting to see some change, but we're hoping that the The drinking public in the USA are reaching out for something different and may look to the Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs and Rieslings of New Zealand um, to add to their understanding.
1: I've come to regard New Zealand in my own mind as a freak of nature. It just has a confluence of climactic and geographical conditions that's unmatched. Mm -hmm. It goes without saying that every wine region is unique unto itself. But New Zealand just has this edge that I can't even articulate to you, but you feel it when you're there. Mm-hmm. You just know it. You feel it in your bones. I wonder if there's a way to, or is there a way, to communicate to um, a wine drinker, a wine consumer, those unique qualities that attribute to the wine that they're purchasing in other varieties specifically, like Chardonnay or Riesling or Pinot Noir for that matter. How do you actually articulate that edge
2: Wow, that's a great question, and I'm not sure I can answer that unless I know that sometimes you know people like yourself who've been to New Zealand, you get off a plane and the to me the air smells different down there,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I think the the sky is a little bit brighter, and the grass does seem greener, and there is this um exuberance and freshness and natural feel about Mm -hmm. New Zealand because it's not well populated Mm -hmm. you know there are a lot of sheep there and a lot of you know deer and cows and all that kind of stuff and a lot of forest and whilst you know like any country in the world we have our challenges it's relatively still young and fresh Mm -hmm. and, and, and vibrant and I think that that allows this Uh, organic, symbiotic relationship with the products that we have for example, the wines that we produce we don't have to massage flavours in wine Yes Um, We do to a degree, but it's far less than some of our counterparts do, Mm -hmm. so that brightness, that freshness, that crispness, that natural flavour is all there on its own youthful way
1: I love how you describe this very contextual natural transition even mechanically speaking the dairy industry in New Zealand really facilitated in a lot of ways uh, the wine industry and then of course the nature mm-hmm. is just so self evident that a lot of people talk about hands off you know less manipulative approaches to wine but for you you don't, you don't necessarily even have to have this discussion it shows up in fact, yeah. so well. yeah. Um, so I've thought over the years, you know, maybe some of what the marketing trepidation is is that there's such largesse that you're almost like walking you back a little bit. You're almost like embarrassed because it's, you don't have to work as hard as some others. Mm-hmm. So I always found it kind of curious in terms of marketing discussions in New Zealand. There's almost that, like I said, kind of a pushback. It's mm. like, well, but it's our savvy, but. It's the best in the world for what it is.
2: Mm, I agree. The conclusion of this interview can be
0: found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.